Over the last few months, we've been listening for God's address through the story of Jacob. And this morning, we come to the tragic moment when Jacob's daughter, Dinah, is raped. And Jacob's sons, in return, rape the city of Shechem. It's a very disturbing passage. There's a lot of social pressure in moments like this on a preacher to somehow make this whole story more palatable. William Willerman, a professor at Duke University, a retired Methodist bishop, a really, really good preacher. One time he said that after a passage like this is read in church, a pastor often feels compelled to stand up and say, wait, wait, just give me 20 minutes. I'll explain it to you. You can feel better and we can go home for lunch. Well, I'm going to disappoint on both occasions. It won't be 20 minutes. And there is nothing redemptive about this passage. You can't peek under a word here or a phrase there and find the happy leprechaun waving his hand. Surprise, it's all right. The message of Dinah's rape and of the rape of Shechem is this. Sin is pernicious. Give it an inch, it'll take a mile. The old preachers in the tradition, I grew, I grew up Baptist, the old Baptist preachers, they would say, sin will take you further than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. Christ died for us so that we could be free of sin and give God our full affection. Half-hearted devotion will lead to compromise and compromise leads to destruction. Over the last two weeks, we've seen in Genesis chapter 32 and 33 that Jacob has become a mature father, a mature husband, a faithful and devoted follower of God. And in living this way, he's had a remarkable number of successes. Peace with his conniving father-in-law, Laban. Peace with his murderous brother, Jacob. And in both of these situations, we've seen in the last couple of weeks that Jacob, facing danger and filled with fear, still does the right thing. He acts with bold leadership, with prudence, and with faith. So at the end of Genesis 33, here is Jacob, returned from exile, safe, mostly sound. He's got this limp. And suddenly, we get this ugly catastrophe of Genesis 34. What went wrong? What happened? Well, in order to understand that Genesis 34 isn't just some strange insertion, we need to zoom out. Back in Genesis 25, Jacob deceived and stole his brother's birthright. And then in Genesis 27, he steals that same brother. He steals his blessing. So fearing his brother's murderous rage, Jacob runs away. He flees home. He heads off on a 500-mile journey to Haran. And as we saw a few weeks back, on the first night of this journey to Haran, Jacob stays in the city of Luz. And he has a dream. And in this dream, he meets some angels and he meets God. And God makes a promise to Jacob. 
It's actually a reaffirmation. God reaffirms the promises that God had made to Jacob's grandfather Abraham and Jacob's father Isaac. Promises of land, descendants, and protection. And then in Genesis 28 verse 15, God says to Jacob, I am really with you. I will guard you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land because I shall not leave you until I've done for you what I've promised. This is remarkable, right? God says, look, Jacob, I know you're on the run. I know you're under threat. I know you're all alone in a scary world. I know you're leaving the land that I have given to your family. But I promise you those great promises I made to your grandparents and parents, they're for you too. And get this, Jacob, I will not abandon you. I'm going to make sure you're okay. I'm going to be with you. So Jacob wakes up from this dream in which God really does speak to him. And he's shocked and he's afraid because he's realized that he stumbled right into God's presence. And Jacob has been eh, not so interested in God up to this moment. And suddenly he's afraid because he's encountered a great, powerful God. And he does three things in response. Number one, the name of the city was Luz. He renames it Beth-El. Beth is house. Bethlehem is house of bread. Lechem is bread. Beth-El. El is the Hebrew word for God. House of God. Remember that because it's important for what comes up. Second, he builds a memorial pillar to mark that as a place where he encounters God. And third... He makes a vow to God that he will be loyal to God and worship God and give God 10% of a tithe of all his possessions if God does keep his promise and bring him back safely. That's Genesis 28. So then Jacob keeps going. He makes his way to Haran. And over a period of 20 years living there in Haran, God blesses Jacob with a large family and many servants and enormous wealth in livestock. That's Genesis 29 through Genesis 30. Then God speaks to Jacob after 20 years for a second time. Again, it's in a dream. He identifies himself as the same God he met back at Bethel. The God who told him that he would be with him. And in this dream, he tells him, now it's time. 20 years have passed. Go back. So Jacob does. He obeys God and he journeys back home. And on the way of this journey, he faces enormous dangers. First, the danger of Laban, his father-in-law, evil, conniving, deceptive, coming toward him with a military force. Then he faces certain death at the hands of his brother, who also brings an army with him. But in both situations, Jacob displays enormous courage. Not in, not in absence of fear. He's deathly afraid. It says quite clearly. But in, in, but in the face of fear, he does the right thing. That's courage. What does he do? He prays and he acts prudently. Vigorous prayer and clever behavior. This is what he does. How does he have this courage? Well, he has learned to trust God. He's learned to trust in God's promises. That God said he would bring him home safely. That's all Genesis 32 and 33. And this brings us to the story in Genesis 34. 
Jacob and his family have crossed the Jordan River just west into Canaan. And they've gone through the verdant green valley between the mountains. And Jacob has come to the prosperous city of Shechem. Here, he needs to turn south and get this. Just go 40 more miles. He has traveled 960 miles. He is only 40 miles away. And he stops. He's almost there. He made a promise to God. God made a promise to him. God, if you keep me safe, if you bless me, I'll return to this place. I will worship you here. I'll give 10% of everything to you as a way of saying you gave it all to me anyway. God, I will do it. And he's almost there. He's only 40 miles away. And he stops and he buys property in Shechem. I want to draw your attention to Genesis 33, verse 18, a a verse that CJ read to us. If you have a Bible with you, please look, look here with me. Genesis 33, 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, that's Haran. And he camped before the city. We're not told why. Perhaps he's still afraid of Esau. And this is a good place to be in case his, brother, his brother's anger returns and he gets his militia together and comes after him again. Or perhaps it's simply the lure of a lush valley and a prosperous city. In any case, the attentive reader of Genesis knows this is bad. If you've been reading the book of Genesis and paying close attention, you know this is bad for three reasons. Number one, Lot made the same choice. Abraham and Lot, they stood at a point and they had to pick where they were going to live. And Lot picked the lush valley and the successful city of Sodom. And Abraham picked the barren places. It ended catastrophically for Lot. Second... Like I've said, Jacob had made a vow to God, a promise to go back, to return to Bethel. And third, it's something in the grammar of the Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament. In verse 18, that last phrase, he camped before the city. A more literal translation, he camped in the face of the city. And if you're reading this attentively, the last time you come across this language is Genesis 17.1, when God says to Abraham, walk in my face. And so Jacob has made a choice that rather than walking before the face of God, he will settle before the face of a successful city. So the attentive reader knows that Shechem will be for Jacob what Sodom was for Lot. He will escape but barely and at the cost of a woman he is supposed to protect. This flourishing city, this lush valley, it looks so inviting, but it is a tragic place to get sidetracked. What about you? Are you stuck in a Shechem? Have you gotten sidetracked? Have you been compromising? Are you considering a compromise? The thing to see here is that Jacob, coming off the enormous successes of Genesis 32 and 33, lets his guard down. He gets complacent. 
He was scared to death in the face of annihilation. But he's not afraid of assimilation. He's got a false sense of security. A false sense that, you know what, I've had great success. I can handle this. Don't misunderstand me. We have a heavenly father who loves us and he wants what's best for us. But God wants our full attention. He will not settle for second place. Did you hear when we read the law of God? Love me with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. That's what he wants. And he doesn't settle for anything else. In terms of God's priorities, our faithfulness must come above everything else. Success, prosperity, ease, comfort. That's what we heard in our gospel reading. What does it profit a man to get everything but but not follow God wholeheartedly? Security and comfort, the very goals of life for most people in our country, do not guarantee a happy ending. In fact, it's often when we're most comfortable... That we're most seduced by sin. Think of all the scandals up the road in Washington, D.C. Involving leaders who at the height of their careers take a bribe. Embezzle a little extra. Sleep with a staffer. Or think of the famous Christian leaders with healthy families and thriving ministries. Who've succumbed to temptation and undermined all their previous efforts. On behalf of God's kingdom. Think of churches and traditions that have endured great persecution with faithfulness and then traded in as they're assimilated to society's values. The risk we're looking at is the risk of assimilation. Jacob, he was very clever when it came to the risk of annihilation, the way he handled Laban, the way he handled Esau, his brother, but he was foolish. He was an idiot. When it came to the threat of this being assimilated into society's values, into a pagan culture, resulting in apostasy, resulting in compromising the ways of God. We're constantly warned against this in Scripture. One of the ways God insists on His people resisting assimilation is through your choice of a spouse. Over and over in the Bible, God tells His people, do not, under any circumstances, marry an unbeliever. Never, ever. Teenagers, college students, never, ever. And if you can't marry them, don't date them. It's foolish. A little bit later through the mouth of Moses, God puts it this way. I'm reading, this is Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me. Marriage to an unbeliever will turn your heart. It is not worth it. It is better to be single and lonely than married and apostate. This is all over the Bible. Jacob had learned this lesson from his parents. That's the central driving feature of this whole narrative, right? He had to leave Haran. And where did he go? He, went, he had to leave home. Where did he go? He went to a place where he could get a, a wife that was safe. Same thing happened to Isaac. Same thing happened to Abraham. This has been going all the way through. Why did Jacob settle in Shechem? Why did he expose his daughter to this? He knew about Lot. We shouldn't be surprised when the first verse of Dinah's story gives us a sense that trouble is brewing. Out went Dinah to visit the daughters of the land. Why? 
And why didn't Jacob stop her? I don't have time to go into this, but the reason he didn't stop her is because he didn't love her mother and he didn't love her. He never loved Leah. He always played favoritism against Leah. If you notice all through this story, he never says anything. He's not even bothered by the rape. He's played favoritism so long that his emotionless response condemns him. He failed as a father. When you feel the weight of the whole narrative up to this moment, you know that venturing forth alone into the Canaanite community was very risky for her. The Canaanite women were bad company for Dinah. And sure enough, Shechem comes along. And if you could read it in Hebrew, it is brutal. He, it doesn't even use her name. It replaces her name with this untranslatable sign of the direct object. He takes, it's basically it. Rapes it, humiliates it. I wish I don't have the courage to translate it the way I think it really is. Normally, it says the literal language on the rape part is lay with her. Normally, in Hebrew, it'll say lay with her, and there's ways you can know that it's rape. This takes out the with, he laid her. It is vile language. And then comes Hamer, Shechem's father. Shechem's father, and how does he respond? He goes to meet with Jacob, the father of Dinah, and he says, Hey, it's okay. We can sort this out. We can make an honest woman out of your daughter. <laughs> we can all profit from this. Look at 34, verses 9 and 10. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. You know what's interesting about what he offers him? It's exactly what God offered him in Genesis 28. Jacob, if you follow me, what will I give you? This land. Prosperity in this place. I'm reading this all week and I'm thinking, this is Satan tempting Jesus. This is Satan offering Jesus the very things that God had offered Jesus. Here is, here is, um, I've totally lost the thought. Hamar, here is Hamar saying to, to Jacob, look, you made it. I'll give you everything you've been longing for. All you have to do is intermarry. Look. How many of us have been Christians for a very long time and have been tempted in this same way? We try to stand firm against sin, but when the enemy comes, things get muddled. The tempter says, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Let's just be friends. Don't make a big deal out of this issue. You're embarrassing yourself. Here's an example. You're at work. You're at school. You're trying to be faithful. You're trying to be true to God, an ambassador for Christ. The tempter doesn't usually come up to you in the form of a boss or a friend or a roommate and say, would you stop following Jesus? No, normally it doesn't work that way. Most likely you find yourself in a situation where there is enormous pressure to not say anything about your faith. Just keep peace with your roommates, your students, your colleagues. Don't say anything negative about the rights of two people to get married who are the same gender. Stand on the right side of history. Stand with love. 
Stop treating the Bible as if it's an authority. Treat it like a dialogue partner. Admit that there's no definitive interpretation of it. Admit that everybody argues about it anyway, so you can't really trust it. Instead, treat it as a source of discussion. Assimilate. Join us. All for one and one for all. But sin is pernicious. Part of what's going on in this story is that God is teaching us that we live in a world where we are not all in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. You do not live in a safe neighborhood. This is not one big happy neighborhood. Christians, followers of God, you are aliens and strangers. And there's finally come a moment in America where we feel that. We're either swimming upstream or we're going with the flow. It is naive to think that the culture around us is neutral. Every day we suffer an onslaught of messages from our culture bombarding us and requiring us to conform to a world in which your appearance, your pleasure, your ambitions, your needs take precedent over everything else, especially God. But this world will not stop until you have been fully assimilated to the beliefs and the practices of the culture. To the extent that you find yourself living in the face of Shechem, your senses are dulled. And it is hard to resist the steady drumbeat of assimilation. Now back to our story. Before the vile... As, after this vile rape, this terrible treatment of Dinah as an object, before then, then the father comes and talks to Dinah's father, and before Jacob and his sons have the opportunity to even respond, Hamar to Hamar's offer, Shechem jumps in. He impetuously intrudes. He offers to buy what he's already taken. Let me find favor in your eyes, and I'll give you whatever you ask. Make the price for her. The gift. Tell me and I'll bring, I'll bring it to you as, as big as you want. I'll bring it to you. I'll pay whatever you ask. Only give me the girl as my wife. Shechem never says her name. Name your price. How much do you want in exchange for being assimilated? What about you? What's your price? How much do you want? Often it's not much, is it? A promotion to a respectable position. A nice house in the best school district. An attractive spouse. Or perhaps the price is just the assimilation itself. No, really, I don't need anything just like me. Just don't think of me as unintelligent. As obnoxious. As a stick in the mud. Jesus said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? What can a person give in exchange for a soul? Only, you see, Jesus says, only his blood can pay the price for your life. I don't have time to walk us verse by verse through this chapter. I wish that I did. I wish that I was a better preacher. There is so much here that I wish that I could share with you. Let me summarize what happens because of Jacob's sin and settling in Shechem rather than just going 40 more miles. His teenage daughter, she was between 13 and 15. 
The daughter he's called to protect and nurture in the Lord falls in with bad company and becomes the sexual conquest of a pagan prince. Did you notice toward the end she was being held captive? This brings shame and scandal upon Jacob and his entire family and no doubt the, resu- the, the rest of Dinah's life is marked by this. As word spread, Jacob remained silent. And in his silence, his sons speak for the first time in the story. And like their father, they are deceitful to Hamar and Shechem. And in their deception, they make circumcision into an empty symbol, devoid of its original meaning as a sign of the covenant between the Lord and his people. They slaughter the men of Shechem. They plunder the women, the children, and the goods of the city. Jacob responds with horror. Look at the end of the chapter. Look at the end of 34. Jacob finally speaks up. Finally. You have brought, uh, if your Bible says trouble, uh, this is Genesis 34 verse 30. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble. It's a bad, it's a weak translation. It would be better to translate it ruin. You have brought ruin on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed both I and my house. Jacob manages in one sentence to use the first person pronoun eight times. Nothing about Dinah. No anger about Dinah getting raped. No anger about his sons making a mockery of the central sign of the covenant. No anger about his sons being deceitful. No anger over their totally irrational, over-the-top act of revenge. His horror is that he might die. From this point onward, Simeon and Levi are permanently alienated from their father. And the rest of Genesis is about the sons of Leah, whom Jacob did not love, and the sons of Rachel, whom Jacob played favoritism with each other, clashing. Do you know, if you know the book of Genesis, this just keeps going. The deceptive ways of the sons continue when they sell their own brother Joseph into slavery and lie to their father about his whereabouts. All because Jacob, all of this terrible pain and suffering in his family, all because Jacob chose to stay in the lush green valley of Shechem rather than to go where the Lord had called him to go. What does God think about all of this? He's silent through the whole chapter. There's only a couple of chapters in Genesis where God doesn't show up and speak. And this is one of them. He's silent through the whole thing. But in chapter 35, he shows up. And what does he say? Look at Genesis 35.1. Arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there. Jacob. Why are you staying here, dwelling here, making an altar here? You've traveled almost a thousand miles. You had only 40 miles left. You got sidetracked. And this time it cost a lot more than a limp. But Jacob, you can still get up. You can still keep going. 
As Christians, we're exhorted time and time again throughout the Bible to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So if you are in Shechem, if you made terrible mistakes, if, they are un- if you cannot erase them, and this stuff can't be undone, mass murder, rape, daughter held captive, you can still get up. You can. If you find yourself thinking about taking a detour, think about what happened to Jacob. Don't give in to temptation now. You've come so far. Don't finish out your race with shame and remorse. Keep in step with the Spirit. Run for the prize. And while there is no interpretive magic that will take away all the darkness and the suffering... We need to remember this story doesn't stand alone. It's a scene in the life of Jacob that spans 10 chapters. And Jacob's life is is a moment in in this larger book of Genesis. And Genesis, of course, is only the beginning of the biblical story of redemption. So we do well to remember that all the depravity of this chapter, every word of every verse points forward in the story beyond Jacob. To a lion from the tribe of Judah who will someday come and gobble up sin forever. So if you find yourself seduced by sin and unable to escape, you need Jesus. He's the only one who is strong enough to rescue us from the bondage of sin. The Holy Scriptures teach us that Jesus came to set us free. Sin, as your master, will destroy you. But Christ is an easy master. He brings life to everyone who follows him. So come to Christ. All of you who are weak and heavy laden. And he will give you rest. That's the invitation to the table. Let's pray.